Fredology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Fraudology Podcast, where every week we will dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of a veteran fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I've focused my life and career on online fraud prevention for over 15 years, working with hundreds of the most well-known e-commerce companies to help them prevent payment fraud and abuse. I know this is the time of year that if you work for a retailer or any merchant who has sales for the holidays and people purchase your goods for the holidays, you are underwater. So just know that I have empathy for you and uh, was thinking about that when creating this episode today. I've really heard from a lot of you and usually that's not the case. Usually in the last six weeks of the year, I can kind of start to catch up on things, but I think that there's just been so much fraud this year and so many different kinds and different ways. I mean, we've talked about a lot of these, I think almost all of them in different ways on this podcast in previous episodes, but from refund fraud to ATOs, really unique ATOs or account takeovers, like what Ellie Dominance shared last week, which if you didn't listen to episode 13, I'm going to give you permission to stop this episode right now and go back because... I have heard so much good feedback about it, and it really helps to explain why account takeovers are so difficult to identify right now compared to even just a few months ago. And he also discusses just the underground world of reshipping and recruiting mules to organizing it and all of that. So I think it was one of the best episodes we've had so far, if not you know the best. So I'm really proud of that and glad that we were able to get that information out because. Sometimes I pick a topic or pick an interview because I'm like, oh, this is going to help answer a lot of the emails that I got that I just wasn't able to respond to. (laughs) Sorry, but I'm trying to be efficient these days as I take on more and more things. So there's just a lot of different complex things that are happening or consumers are getting, you know, recruited or coached to say certain things on phone calls to customer service and social engineering. But it's, is it social engineering when the actual customer is calling and they don't really know the intent. I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I'm a meteorologist for fraud. Like I predicted it was going to be bad this holiday season, but I can't actually go shovel the snow for you, so to speak. So I can tell you there's snowstorm coming, but I can't go shovel your driveway because that would be a lot of driveways to shovel. And in this case, the analogy is referring to helping you like hands-on with the fraud, which Sometimes I really enjoy just doing like analyst work. (laughs) I had a client recently that had like a mystery that they were trying to solve. And I am fortunate enough to have access to a couple of systems, you know, as a user to be able to help my clients out sometimes. And so I said, well, I'd be happy to dive into that. And it was just so much fun. But yeah, so just so many questions that I know you're busy and I know you're like banging your head up against a wall sometimes. So I thought that this episode would be good to kind of be almost like a potpourri of fraud, but I'm going to share some questions I've been asked recently and answer them on the podcast because I think most questions I receive that are at least generalized and not super specific to a company may not be common knowledge to everyone. I mean, we're all in different parts of our fraud journey. And something I love about this industry is that I learn something almost every single day still, and I've been in it for longer than most. How you're able to just turn 40 this year and be considered a veteran and get a lifetime achievement award in an industry is beyond me, but I appreciate all of it. And I have to say, knowing the history is really helpful in some cases. So In others, I'm sure it's just, you know, if I wrote the book, it would just put people to sleep, but I find it interesting. So yeah, we're going to do that. Also, I wanted to kind of share a little bit of the highlights of the very first Fraud Fighter Happy Hour that I hosted. 
If you didn't know about it, that's because I created it pretty quickly. The week before Thanksgiving here in the U.S., a lot of merchants were just sharing with me that they are feeling really isolated and they missed conference season. That's what I call it when there's so many conferences in spring and fall. And they just really missed talking to their peers. And so I quickly set up my fraud fighter happy hour the Tuesday before Thanksgiving here. And I you know, invited, I don't know, at least 100 people that I just had time to invite. There was a lot of people that I didn't get time to invite. And I think we had just under 20 attend, which it's a lot for a Zoom call. It's not as many as I was expecting, but I'd planned to have some breakout rooms for people to really kind of talk with each other if it was bigger, but with it being kind of small like that, I didn't see the point in breaking it up into small groups. So we ended up having introductions take hmm, pretty much an hour and 55 minutes. And I planned two hours with a whole agenda of things like fraud story competition and another competition on ways to support your team remotely. Cause I know that's something a lot of people are struggling with and wanting to get ideas for. And just a couple other things. I, oh, I also shared a hot tip on manual review that I learned from someone who is incredibly smart and works for a fraud guarantee vendor. And, you know, those guys, they really, they rely on the margins. So, and they rely on, you know, getting it right and approving it. Cause that's the only time they get paid, at least depending on the structure, but these guys specifically. So yeah, I learned a great manual review tip that he gave me permission to share with merchants and then also talked about the top three biggest threats this holiday season, which are all things I've talked about on the podcast, especially with Ellie's interview last week. But I had already interviewed Ellie and I'd been working with him for a couple of months before then. So I was able to share some of those things. Sometimes there's things that I just, I can't share on a public forum, especially because I get like the LinkedIn connection request I got a couple of weeks ago from a detective who said that he learned about the online broadcast, my previous podcast, by reading through transcripts of a bad actor's text messages with his co-conspirator that they're investigating. And apparently the bad actor had suggested the online broadcast to his peer to listen to, to understand what's being done on the prevention side. I mean, that's not news to me. I knew that was going to happen. And there are certain things that I always, always keep behind this public facing platform and I know where the line is. So that's also another reason why I always have the strict policy of no naming company names when relaying stories or questions, but I'm just conscious of it. So there's certain things I can't share on the podcast, but I could share on that format. So that was really fun. But yeah, we didn't get to any of that. We just mostly got to introductions because as people started to hop on the Zoom call, I thought, oh, well, you know, I know who they all are, all but maybe one or two people I knew pretty well. And so I was like, you know, I know where they work and what they're dealing with, but nobody else does. So I thought, oh, we'll take the first half hour and just do introductions. And I just asked for, you know, name, company and biggest fraud threat right now. And yeah, took 15 people to go through that many introductions. I mean, because what happens and this is just totally normal and fine and fun is somebody will say, oh, we're having a problem of X. And then other people will be like, oh, have you tried this or this? Or, oh, what does that look like for your company? Because it's really interesting. I mean, it's kind of like seeing the forest through the trees. That's why I love this position I've kind of carved out for myself in the industry is because I get to see all the moving parts and how different companies and different business models and different price points and just all different things have very different and unique challenges from each other. And the type of tools you use really does matter. A fraud tool is not just a fraud tool. There are some pretty significant differences and results, really significant results that merchants have depending on the provider they use. So these were all great questions and conversations to have, but I was like, oh, why did I even plan an agenda? But I actually went to a mall for the first time in, I don't even know, like 10 months and picked out a few fun little prizes for everyone. And I know a bunch of people were really looking forward to the fraud story competition, but those poor people on the East Coast, it was like 10 o'clock their time or almost. So I said, well, do you guys want to do this again or do you want to do it by email? And everyone said they wanted to do it again on the following Tuesday, which was the day after Cyber Monday. And I said, are you guys sure it's probably going to be really busy? Oh, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. This is after work. We'll do it. Yeah, the next call we had was remarkably less people. It was still great. And it actually even went over two hours because, you know, us fraud fighters, we have a lot in common and we love this industry. It's not just a job for 
I would say 80% of us. So it doesn't matter if there's five people, 20 people or a hundred people on the phone, like it could go forever. And I'll just have, you know, for whatever it's worth, I don't think I was the one that talked the most on that first call. I'm not going to name any names, but I don't think I was. But that's all good. We all learn from each other. And I think, you know, our passion and our genuine curiosity and sense of justice is something that we share with each other quite a bit. You know, it's a shared trait amongst fraud fighters. So it was definitely a good time. And if you missed it, and if you're a merchant, I will be hosting another one in January. It's something that has been asked and I will definitely provide it. There probably will be a cover fee as I was calling it. I think last time it was $10. So I try to keep it really minimal, but it just, you know, covers my time, my assistance time, and also the prizes and stuff like that. I don't have a date yet for it, but I should have it by next week's podcast. And we'll have a link in there for signups in the show notes. So look forward to that. I've got a few things that I've been planning in the works. So just super busy on top of it. So I'm kind of going through one of my periods where I feel like I am dropping balls. So I apologize if an email to you or a LinkedIn message or anything else has been dropped recently. I will try really hard to catch up. Like I said, I think I was expecting this time to be time to catch up and it isn't. And that's okay. I enjoy being busy and I enjoy helping people. But I hate feeling like things are, you know, I'm spinning plates and some of them are breaking. And I can guarantee you that on the next one, we're not going to have introductions as long or at all. I think actually a really good idea came up of sending it out beforehand of like a list of who's coming and a link to their LinkedIn page so they can kind of know. I think that might be helpful. Several people asked me why merchant only and were kind of upset with me that I was being exclusionary. I don't ever like to be exclusive. I am all about being inclusive in life and in this industry. And I do try to share as much information as possible for everyone in the industry. And I believe that we need technology companies and, you know, people that are supporting merchants as much as we, you know, need merchant fraud fighters on the inside. But it comes down to a few things. One, it's privacy. There's something, there's this unspoken agreement amongst merchants that they're not going to tell on each other. They might tell the story, but they're not going to say what company it is. And it could be pretty dangerous if some of the information got out to, you know, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, et cetera, like any kind of news outlet. And so what usually ends up happening is when events are, for lack of a better term, mixed company with merchants and vendors, merchants just don't share things. They might say a little bit like, oh, we have account takeover, but they're not going to go into full detail about what that looks like or what's going on because they don't want it shared outside of that call. But also they've been burned a lot. There are a lot of merchants I know who have shared or asked questions at conferences who now will no longer ask questions or who have presented on a webinar or at an event And they won't do it again because they get so many requests from solution providers and salespeople saying, hey, I know you said you had this problem. This is how we can fix it. And even one extreme case, and I shared this on my previous podcast, was a merchant who shared on a private forum for members only about fraud attempts they were having. And it was a super innocent question. It was just asking, is anyone else seeing fraud attempts on this bin number? We're seeing a lot of attempts and, you know, Fortunately, we're catching them all, but really would like to know if there's something going on with this bin or what's happening. And a solution provider saw that post and reached out, not to them, but to their boss's boss. I believe it was at the C-level and basically said that their fraud uh, leader, I don't know if their title was manager or director or anything like that, but their leader of fraud had posted in a public forum, not true, that they were losing millions of dollars, not true to fraud and that they were the only company that could fix it. So these are the kinds of things that unfortunately have started happening over the last five or six years. I pretty much can draw a straight line to VC money coming in, which does not mean that all venture capital money or private equity money is bad. Not at all, but it's created a much more competitive landscape amongst solution providers and So it's really hard for merchants to be honest and kind of let down their guard. And they just really needed to just talk with each other and talk with their peers and not have to worry about sales calls or 
leaks or anything like that. And I would love to come up with some kind of a solution so that we can be inclusive. You know, another suggestion has been to maybe base it on expertise and experience and merit and basically title and not company. So if someone is in operations in fraud fighting or they're a subject matter expert in fraud for a solution provider, maybe they can attend, but then I can totally see you know, them being put in a position where they're asked to provide a list of the names of people that were there or the companies or, you know, what their problems were. So it just, it becomes a challenge. And then it's a liability on me. And I do have insurance for professional services, but my goal in my business ownership is to not ever have to use it. And the fact that so many merchants trust me, even without an NDA in place or trust each other, even without NDAs in place, like I don't want to lose that. So I wanted to spend just a couple minutes explaining that. I know I, I get some grief about that from some people, some people more than others, and some people are kidding and others are, are definitely not. But, you know, I mean, I could also be a jerk and say it's not my responsibility to create sales opportunities for you, but that's not my stance. My stance is that I will always be a merchant at heart and the entire premise of this event, as well as future events that I will do will be around that. And I may have something for solution providers or for, you know, everyone at some point, I'm just a small business. I'm not a large organization that does this professionally. This was literally just trying to serve a need. So I think I've said enough about that, but I just really don't want to get any more hate mail or just, you know, angry mail about it. I don't know if it's hate, but definitely some anger. And I get it. You feel FOMO. FOMO sucks if you're missing out. So I apologize, but that's just the way it has to be right now because of bad apples and all that. <laughs> so instead of a traditional what the fraud segment, I thought that I would share two of the fraud stories that came up on the second fraud fighter happy hour call. I believe on the subject line of the invite, I called it fraud fighter happy hour 2.0. <laughs> At least at this point, we pretty much knew everyone. I think there was one or two people that weren't able to attend the first one, but had signed up. So they attend the second one, but those intros were a lot faster. So I'm going to try to generalize these as much as possible so that the <laughs> name and company are, you know, anonymous to protect the innocent, so to speak. But I intentionally picked these two stories, not just because they were two of the most memorable, but because I think the reason why we all love fraud stories so much isn't just because we love fraud. And like I said before, it's, it's not just an occupation. It is a passion and a purpose. It's also because it's a good learning opportunity. So, you know, we can hear a fraud story and remember it a lot better. There's a lot of studies that say that our brains remember stories over facts and figures. Sometimes I remember facts and figures more. So that's why, and I picked these two stories because I thought that they had the best learning opportunities and they were some of the most memorable. So the first one, the fraud fighter started out by saying that he believes and has not received any other evidence to the contrary that he had discovered banana fraud. I didn't know what that was either. There were a lot of confused looks on Zoom. So that was kind of, you know, a good way to start, I guess. And this is a former employer of his, but it was for an app. And there are a few of these that provide rewards based on your purchases. So sometimes you scan the receipt. Sometimes you have a plugin on your desktop or your browser. Sometimes you have an app on your phone. Sometimes you use a code. It really depends. But, you know, there are several different types of companies that provide cash back or gift cards and loyalty points back for those purchases. And the purpose of these apps or services are to provide retailers or stores, as well as companies that have products in stores, the opportunity to incentivize or reward people for purchasing their products. So in this case, this particular app was working on building its customer base. And I don't believe they just have an app. I think they have other things too. So they had a $20 referral bonus. And that is something that's pretty common in apps these days, whether it's ride shares or any other thing where if you refer a friend, you can get, you know, $10, $20, whatever. For this, it was $20. You get $20 and they get $20, I believe. So in total, the company is paying $40. And they're paying that in gift cards or cash or whatever. So it's a, there's a real cost to it. It's not just like 
you know, they're writing off their profit margin or something. So anyway, they offered this, but they didn't at the time, and this was several years ago, they didn't at the time have any limits to device. So in theory, someone could use their phone or their computer to set up 20 different accounts, say that their email address referred all of them. So then the original email address gets all the, you know, $20 each per referral. And then the new accounts that were created by the same person also get that $20. And kind of the catalyst for getting that $20 back was that you had to use it in a purchase. So that was the company's way of thinking, oh, well, at least they're going to purchase something that we're highlighting. And so we'll get our money back that way. Well, in addition to that referral code promotion, they also had a promotion for bananas. And I don't know who it was sponsored by because it was for any brand of bananas. It could be Del Monte, it could be Chiquita, etc. But for every time you had a, any bananas on your receipt, you would get 20 cents. And the assumption was that you would buy more than one banana, but it just said, you know, any amount of bananas. And as long as it's on your receipt, you get, you know, 20 cents. So what a few and a lot of people, it's kind of like death with by a thousand paper cuts, but a lot of people had a lot of free time to do this. They would create new accounts and use their referral code from their very first email address. Then they would go to the grocery store and buy one banana per transaction. God bless those cashiers. I don't know if they left the line and came back or if they just said, can I have a separate transaction for each banana? And then can I have the receipt for each of those? Thanks. But after purchasing that banana and scanning that receipt, the new account got $20 back. The referring account got $20 back. And actually the new account got $20 and 20 cents back. And this was well before the year 2020. So that's just a coincidence. But that is what he refers to as banana fraud. And as things always happen, it, you know, they discovered it on a weekend or some time where a lot of people are out of the office. So they just had to like create a temporary rule fix for it and then fix it later. So that was entertaining. And one of the people on the call, she said, well, that story's bananas. And I think I've mentioned before on the podcast that my husband is ridiculously punny and he like puts a lot of the traditional dad jokes to shame. I don't know how he does it. He comes up with it so quickly. It's ridiculous, but we won't tell him he doesn't listen to the podcast. So I can say that I do admire it, but sometimes my eyes get tired from rolling so much. <laughs> Not going to lie. And now it's like his favorite thing to get a chuckle out of me because I don't always laugh anymore. After almost 15 years, it's like, eh, but they're very original. So when I told him this banana fraud story, he very seriously and quickly responded and said, do you think that they had a meeting to discuss the banana ramifications of that error? And I was like, oh my gosh, really? But the merchant that shared that story thought that that was pretty funny. (laughs) The second story isn't as funny or just entertaining, but it is a pretty good cautionary tale. Again, I'm going to be generalizing this as much as possible to protect the innocent as well as, you know, just not stir up anything. But there was a pretty large retailer that we all know the brand. They're just as popular with fraudsters as they are with consumers. I shouldn't say just as, but it seems like that to the fraud team, obviously, because they, you know, look at those orders, but it's, you know, under 1%, but still 1% of a lot is still a lot. And they often have sales that really attract a lot of fraudsters. So they had gotten a new fraud system a few years ago, and we're still kind of learning how to set custom rules. So it was, you know, real-time machine learning, but a lot of these providers have the ability to write custom rules or integrate their blacklist or, you know, negative lists that they've had for, you know, on their previous provider onto the new one. And in this case, the rule writing was kind of complicated. It wasn't just a couple buttons like in some consoles or UX. So in this case, it was kind of like a form of SQL code writing. And there was no training provided to the merchants on this system. No hands-on training anyways. I think they received like a couple books or eBooks or something like that, but there was no hands-on training, which for the size of that merchant, I can't believe they didn't fly people out to train them, but I'm 
you know, was not the one that negotiated that contract, not even close, but that in my opinion should have been what they did or offer to write them for them or offer to look at them. Anyways, it was a Friday night and they were having a big sale that Saturday and the person in charge of fraud needed to write a quick rule that would help decline orders for things that they knew were a hundred percent fraud. So there was a specific fraud scheme that if this and this and this were combined, it was a hundred percent fraud. So they wrote up that rule, put it in the system, went home for the weekend, didn't think about it again until they got a call from their boss's boss on Saturday early evening asking if anything different had been done to the fraud system and you know trying to figure out what happened and they said, well, yeah, I wrote a new rule, but I don't think that would change anything. Why? Well, it turned out that every single order that came into the website since the time of the rule change was auto-declined. That was around 100,000 orders in less than 24 hours. And their average order value is in the hundreds. So it was a lot. Well, maybe not in the hundreds, but it was it's at least 100. So that's a lot of money. It was very, very, very costly. And obviously, moral of the story is to learn the fraud tool and, you know, support your merchants and all of the other things. But I think what's remarkable is that they didn't lose their job and it was, you know, understood by the company and they were able to reach back out to customers saying, ah, we had a glitch and, you know, please go back. But it was really because of the fraud system. And isn't that everyone's worst nightmare? Oh my gosh. I had so much empathy for that person sharing the story. Like I wanted to crawl through Zoom and give them a hug, but then that kind of defeats the purpose of social distancing. But that's where it really stuck with me. And I think it stuck with everyone else on the call. It was oh, painful. And it turns out when they looked at the rule that there was just like a space where there wasn't supposed to be. And so a space just completely ruined the entire sales for a 24-hour time period or a little less than 24 hours for a very large retailer. So cautionary tales for sure. <laughs> so I spent more time talking about that on this episode than I expected. So I probably won't get it go through all of the questions I've received. Honestly, I didn't even write down all the questions I received in the last, I don't know, I think I looked at like the last two weeks, three weeks in my LinkedIn inbox. By the way, I have the hardest time keeping up on my LinkedIn inbox because you're not able to organize it like an email inbox. And I just get overwhelmed. And I also have you know, work that I need to do for clients. And so I can't always get to everyone's questions and I really apologize for that, but I do read almost every single one and I do try to go back and answer as many as I possibly can. And if I haven't replied to you, it's not purposeful. I mean, there's a couple salespeople that maybe it is, but it's probably not you, but just know that I'm trying. And if it's really important, feel free to reach back out a few days later. Sometimes if it gets back up to the top of my inbox, I can catch it again. But all that said, you know, I often will say that I feel like I'm the, well, no, I just recently started saying that I feel like I'm the search engine for fraud because, you know, people contact me when they don't know who else to ask. And I will wear that like a badge of honor. If people ever stop asking me random questions about things that they don't know the answers to, I am going to be so bummed and like question my impact on society. So please don't stop that part. <laughs> Okay, but I am going to try to get through as many as possible because I do think if people took the time to write these out, that chances are they're not the only ones that have the question. So first one says, hi, Chris, I haven't heard you talk about refund fraud in a while. Is that because it's died down? Absolutely not. Not even close. In fact, it's gotten so much worse in the last couple of months. The reason I kind of stopped talking about it is because I felt like I was talking to myself. This is such a hard issue. And this is where I think those of us in e-commerce, we're our own worst enemy in some ways. And I totally get it. One of the ways that we're able to be lean and, you know, move fast and all of that is by prioritization. And it's really, really, really hard to have an ROI on something that is mixed in with good orders. There's no separation. There's no one saying that was a good refund. That was a bad refund. That was a fraudulent refund. That was a legitimate one. And so because of that, you have this huge bucket of refunds and you know, some of them are fraud, but in order to get approval for financing, you know, either to bring myself or chase in or, you know, to really do anything about the problem, 
you have to be able to justify it and put a dollar figure to the problem. And this is a challenge that we've really had with several retailers that, you know, the fraud department and customer service department know this is a problem and know it's costing their you know company millions of dollars. But because they can't concretely say this problem is costing us X, nothing's getting approved. And not even time to look at it internally. There's just nothing to be improved. And we're doing it to ourselves. We're letting these guys completely just get away with it because of the system. So, you know, we've tried to find ways around it as far as creating or adding up how many posts and vouches there are on the dark web systems that we monitor to be able to say, okay, well, in the last week you had... $50,000 worth of vouches. And that's just a small percentage because it's very similar to reviews on an e-commerce website, right? Not every customer that orders an item places a review, but what they call vouches are really like a review. It's a screenshot of usually of the order and then showing a refund, or sometimes it's a screenshot of an email from a customer service rep, which can be very dangerous, by the way, especially when they have their last names attached, because those get shared on the dark web or, you know, private companies. I don't know, like Ellie said last week, the dark web, it's not really accurate. So it's hard to say, but it's just something that we all kind of, you know, understand what we're referring to. So it's easier. But yeah, so it's only a small percentage of vouchers are being posted about refunds. So there really isn't a way from the criminal side to know, okay, you had this many fraudulent refunds last month or last week. It's kind of a guess, but you can guess that it's conservative but it's hard to justify bringing in a consultant for a relatively small dollar number, even though you know it's going to be so much more. So that's the first reason. It's not just because like I'm not being hired for it. It's mostly because I just felt like nobody really cared as much. They wanted a quick fix or they wanted a technology solution for it. And there just isn't one yet. I'm sure there will be soon or at some point. And there are also some providers that took my posts about refunding fraud and said things like, you know, there was one guarantee provider that shared one of my posts and said, well, contact us because you won't have to pay for fraud chargebacks. And I'm like, the whole problem with refund fraud is that there aren't chargebacks. So that kind of was frustrating too, as well as, you know, other providers that were saying that they had a product for refund abuse, but really it was, you know, on those repeat offending customers and more on a policy level and not this type of fraud. So That was also frustrating, but primarily it was just because I felt like, well, I feel like I've said everything I can say about it for right now. And just if there isn't a quick fix or if I can't share every single little part with people, they don't want to know. So if I'm wrong on that, please let me know. But it just felt like, I mean, I did several webinars, I did podcast episode, I wrote articles, like I really tried to get the word out and it seemed to kind of go nowhere. And that was frustrating and discouraging to me. So I pivoted into areas that I know are needs that can be better quantified and therefore can have more time and resources spent on it. That said, I think it is important for every retailer to know that there are steep discounts being offered on refunding services because basically that's what happens when you have an unlimited supply and is that you keep drumming up demand with lower prices. So some fees are getting down to as low as 5% of the total order value for a refund because to a refunder, it's worth a phone call you know, to a customer service agent or a chat or an email, et cetera, contact, some kind of contact to the customer service agent or returning items back to the warehouse or returning boxes, at least to the warehouse with, I've heard of everything from cans of peas to little plastic army men and candy and all kinds of things in these boxes that are being returned to the warehouse. And they're just ensuring, they're just banking on the fact that your warehouse is behind on refunds. So then they can call your customer service and say, hey, I have a tracking number. It arrived at your warehouse. So where's my refund? And they'll provide the refund. And then when the warehouse opens it, it's I don't know, a can of peas or there's been some weird stuff, but those are just the ones I can think of off the top of my head. So it's worth it to them to do it. So if somebody orders a thousand dollars worth of items, they're only paying 5% or I mean, which is $50 on that. So they're getting a thousand dollars worth of items from your company for $50 to someone else. It's infuriating. Also, they're advertising on social media and anywhere else they can, and they're not really being shut down. 
So lots of steep, steep discounts on your items in your store are being offered and they're being shared anywhere and everywhere because unfortunately some platforms, there's certain things that they do moderate as far as content, but steep sales are unfortunately one of them. And then lastly, there are much higher limits because of what these guys are calling fake TIDs. It's something that I provided some information on in a PDF on my website that I believe you can still download um, on the Chargelytics Consulting website. And fake TID stands for fake tracking ID. And this is something that they're doing to manipulate the tracking number. The type of manipulation depends on the shipping carrier, but also I'm not going into the specific types of uh, tracking label uh, manipulation on a public platform, mostly to protect you guys so that you know more people aren't doing it. But at the same time, that's also something that I think I share a significant amount of information for free, but there are some specifics that just you know have to be compensated for. And unfortunately, that's one of them, especially because each specific merchant is being targeted a different way with these tracking IDs. But the subcontractor that I have that's working with me, you know, Chase, that you guys have met on the podcast, he is a member of all these groups and can just ask like, hey, how are you doing it for these guys? And he's built up enough clout that that is completely, you know, never even questioned. So anyway, that's the answer to that. I have another sort of kind of related question that I got the other day. Is there such thing as ATO for hire or account takeover for hire? The answer is yes. You know, as you guys know, being on the e-commerce merchant side, you're kind of putting things together. So a fraud fighter started to see this and was like, I don't think they're doing account takeover for themselves. Are they doing it for someone else? There is such thing. And I think I talked about it on a previous podcast episode. I put it under what I'm calling fraud as a service. Refunding is obviously probably the biggest part of fraud as a service as that I've talked about, but there's also warranty exploitation, which I can talk about at another time if that would be um, helpful and useful information as well as buy for you. So the criminals are spelling that B-U-Y number four letter U. And basically the buyers don't know that the methods that's being used. So they don't know if it's account takeover that's being used. They don't know if it's carding. They don't know and they don't care. They don't even know it's fraud. I mean, I think that they know it's fraud, but they choose to not ask any questions. I think that's, you know, just kind of convenient. It'd kind of be like responding to an ad to get rid of your annoying roommate, but they don't say that the way that they get rid of them is by murder. (laughs) I'm not meaning to make light of murder or to really compare fraud and murder. It's just the first analogy that came to my head, but it's kind of like hiring a hitman for fraud. The fees on that are higher than refund, but they're still not bad. And I do believe that Chase talked about this on that podcast episode. So if you're more curious about this, listen to it, because I remember him saying that he can usually tell if it's account takeover or carding on a buy for you based on their fee, because accounts are so much cheaper to buy than cards. And unfortunately, accounts are also so much easier to get undetected through some fraud detection companies and prevention companies. And so if they're asking for 30% of the order value, so on a thousand dollar order, just for simple math, it would be $300. And you're obviously, you know, you're not paying that thousand dollars, then that might be account takeover. But if it's 50 or 60%, it might be carding, but you would do that for items or stores where you can't get a refund without actually returning the item. So you can get refunds, but you have to actually return the item and all of that. So that's why they're doing it that way. I mean, the fees vary, but that's just one example of that. They are higher than refunding, but they are happening a lot faster than ever. I mean, it seems like I just learned about it a few months ago and it's just taking off. So it's something to be aware of. I'm not 100% sure what the traits are that you're going to see on your end, but I think it's really good to know what's happening and what's possible. And definitely, if you'd like me to take a deeper dive on that topic of buy for use, let me know and I'll get someone awesome on the podcast to help explain that further because it's still something that I'm not hearing anyone else really talk about. But Chase does have a really good understanding of it. Another question. Do you know if Visa and MasterCard or, or MasterCard may have any type of blacklist or 
a threat list that they can share for merchants to reference? Short answer is no. I actually had to write back and ask, are you meaning on the consumer side or merchant side? Because there is the risk list, the RIS list that your processor may alert you on that you're considered high fraud to issuers. And it all has to do with the TC40 reports, which is something I wrote an article about <laughs> long ago that I think it was my very first viral article, if you can go viral within a small industry. So anyway, there is the merchant risk list, which can impact your authorization. So some banks, if they see that you're on that, they'll think, oh, you're risky or you're not doing enough to prevent fraud. So they won't approve any order on your site, which is especially challenging for online gaming companies or just any company with small dollar transactions and digital goods, because those are amounts typically, I mean, it really varies by banks. Some banks issue chargebacks for $5, but a lot of banks will not issue chargebacks to merchants for under $50 or under $20. They all have different thresholds. But if that happens, then they're eating the cost of those chargebacks. So that's why they wouldn't approve the orders. I hope that made sense. So if you're afraid that's happening, it's a good exercise to look at your declines by bin and if you see one bin, bank identification number, the first six digits of the card that has canceled every single transaction on your site, then that is an indicator that they may think you're high risk. So a bit of a tangent, but I wanted to you know further explain it. So they were asking if there was a like a one big master blacklist for customers and there isn't. And there are a lot of reasons for that. One is privacy. I mean, at least in the US, no data is private. So that would be one list that a lot of fraudsters would want to get their holds on their, sorry. Oh, hold on. I am really tired, guys. I'm sorry. It is the end of the day and it has been one heck of a day. So I'm so sorry, but I needed to get this to my editor ASAP. So if I'm starting to not make sense, that's why I swear I haven't been drinking. I'm just really, really tired and I've been on calls and working on a project like all day. So basically that would be a huge liability if that was there. It could also be a liability. What if a consumer finds out that they're on that list and that they can't make a purchase anywhere on the internet, then they're going to sue. I mean, I can think of like 20 different reasons why that would be a bad idea. Another one would be that negative lists are very subjective. This is a problem that I have even with consortiums to a certain degree. I think they're great and wonderful, but the problem is when every company has a different level of criteria to mark an order or an account or you know any personal identifying information as fraudulent that that's subjective every company has a different set of criteria for that i've heard stories all the time and i've even seen it myself where a long standing customer with merchant a gets flagged for fraud because merchant B marked them as fraud. Well, who knows? I mean, maybe they called their bank and asked what a charge was about and their bank thought, well, the only thing we can do is file a chargeback. So we're going to file a chargeback. And what if that merchant has a blanket policy that any cardholder that files chargebacks goes on their negative list? Like it's based on, as somebody very, very smart says, it's based on opinion, not fact. And whenever you have different opinions with different criteria, that can just cause a lot of problems and can cause lost sales. So that's another reason. But also, you know, Visa has 3D Secure and so does MasterCard and they call it different things. But I think that that is how they're addressing the problem a little bit or addressing the need as far as having the issuer get to see insight into your data and what's being purchased and what email address was provided to you and what phone number, et cetera. And then they're able to tell you if that's fraudulent or not, but it just, it wouldn't make sense. What I can tell you, and I think I've mentioned this before, is that I've been working with a startup called Identic for the last year and a half or so, and they're out of Tel Aviv. And they have created a anonymous merchant collaboration network that is just phenomenal. It's really something that I am in awe of and a lot of very, very large merchants, like some of the top 50 internet merchants are members of this and they're starting to accept, you know, smaller merchants as well. And basically it's, you're able to verify information without any data ever leaving your server. So Identic doesn't have that information. You aren't sharing it with anyone, but through a pretty sophisticated type of math, 
and cryptography, they're able to verify information without it ever leaving. So if you have a new customer, it's really good for that because you're not seeing if they marked it as fraud, but you're able to see the combinations. So the combinations of email address with credit card or phone number with email address plus credit card and how many times or how many companies that those combinations are on file with and for how long. So that's something that I just really believe in because anything around collaboration and education I love and it's such a new idea, but it's not new. They've been around for, you know, a couple of years, which in startup world is a long time. You know, the network's up and it's really doing well. So I've heard some great feedback. So this is not meant as a plug for them, but just meant as that's the closest thing I can think of to a universal blacklist, especially coming from Visa and MasterCard. But it's not a blacklist. It just allows you to make the decision. So it has facts, not opinions in it. But I personally think that that's more useful. And then you can completely write automated rules around that. So it's not like you're having to have people look at it all the time. So anyway, that was my answer to that merchant, because I think that that would be a great option if they're really worried about just having a blind spot and not knowing, you know, who those people are. Unfortunately, that happens a lot with companies that don't have behavior biometrics or real-time machine learning when they're really relying on a rules-based system. They're really wanting to know that negative list data because that could be helpful. And I happen to know who their fraud provider is and know that that's true in this case. Oh gosh, there's one more question I wanted to get to very quickly here. So I think this is helpful to know. They're a retailer that started out as brick and mortar. So they have physical stores, but now they also have a website and they have had a website for like over a decade. But so here is what the fraud manager had to say. I really appreciated your recent article in CNP titled The Evolution of Trust and Safety. Should it replace fraud prevention? I think I wrote that a few weeks ago. She goes on to say, our loss prevention team has recently been challenging why our teams are separate. And my perception is that this question is motivated by ROI optics. Have you had others ask this question? Yes. And I think it really depends on the company. Sometimes you're just told that departments are merging and that's a challenge. I think what this fraud leader is saying between the lines is that e-commerce fraud is probably saving a lot more money for the company now than physical loss prevention, especially with COVID. And There being so few people shopping in stores right now, especially for the retail items that this company sells. So find them in a mall, not in a shopping center, so to speak. So I'm guessing that that's what she means by that. I have just seen overall a real, I don't know, it's just, I consider myself, you know, this is why I called the podcast Fraudology. I consider myself an observer of our industry And I've seen a lot of patterns and I do see some interesting things about tied to who the fraud department reports to, whether that's when I'm putting a proposal forward. I know that, you know, if they report to finance, I really need to make sure my numbers are solid and my, you know, ROI justifications are really tightened up. I mean, I always, but it's a special little focus, just knowing that someone in finance is going to look at it and thinking about it from a number perspective. You know, sometimes it might explain a little bit more about the justification than I would if they were reporting to IT or loss prevention or they're reporting to oh customer service and operations. Those are the other two that are pretty common. And actually, I had the opportunity to write a survey for CNP. I think it was sponsored by Risk Ident back then, 2018. And I really would love to do another one of these soon. I I absolutely love asking all the questions that merchants want to know the answers to because too many times when surveys are written by providers, it's the questions they want to know. And it's not always the same thing, or at least it's not worded the same way. And it's just, you know, so I'm very proud of that survey and I don't have the results pulled up, which I should, but I know that we asked who the fraud department reported to. That was something that I amassed a lot. So, you know, who should our fraud team be reporting to? So we asked that question and I believe it was a tie between operations and finance. I think in this case, you know, the only types of companies that are going to have this issue where the physical loss prevention team wants to pair up with the fraud department are for those companies that started out as brick and mortar and have an LP department. I mean, there are a lot of digital only companies that don't have loss prevention. So 
that's one part of it. But I think it's important to explain to your company if this is something you don't want to have happen, which I'm assuming it is, why it's so different. It is so different. I mean, it's the difference between studying a person in in a store and watching them and looking at their behavior and their mannerisms and looking at data and extrapolating intentions based on data. Those are completely different skill sets and completely different types of people. And so if it's going to be around the internet and e-commerce and you want decisions made quickly and accurately, then I personally believe that the fraud prevention department should be standalone or trust and safety, whatever, you know, whichever your is right for your company, whichever methodology is right for your company. But I do think that that they should kind of separation of church and state, however, work together, you know, be a resource for each other, because I do think there's some overlap more than ever for omnichannel companies, especially there are a lot of people who are buying items fraudulently online and returning them in store so that they can get gift cards or cash. I mean, there are multiple different types of scams that are crossing paths that way. What about the gift card scam where consumers are being called and um, convinced that they owe a significant amount of money to the government? And the only way to repay it is by going to a retailer to get a stack of gift cards. I mean, that seems ridiculous to us, but in the moment, that fear is struck up. And so people are just terrified that they are going to get hauled off to jail. And so they go buy hundreds of gift cards or 20, whatever they can afford to try to pay this off. And then, you know, so that is also something where it's in person, but the online fraud department has some say in it and understands it and can help. And also they're usually the ones who are called when the customer realizes that they were scammed and wants their money back, but can't if those gift cards have been used. So there is overlap and I do think that you should work closely together, but I just think it's a challenge when you really merge the two teams together to have the same goal and purpose. I mean, your KPIs and everything are going to be different. So I'd love to know your thoughts on that. If you are on the same department as your LP team, maybe I'm not thinking of something, but I do know a few people who are in this situation. So I will make the introduction for the merchant. I just got this question just like, I don't know, over the weekend, I think. So I haven't written her back yet, but I do know that those people aren't really big fans of it. They don't love it. So (laughs) that's also where some of this is coming from. But I really enjoy hearing from you. And especially, you know, if you have a different perspective than anything that I've shared today. So with that, we are literally at the top of the hour. So I am going to wrap up this episode, but next week we have an interview that I'm really excited about. So I am looking forward to speaking with you then. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.